0: Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, the podcast that explores the spectrum of human experience from shadow to light to unity, and specifically how the practices of yin yoga and meditation can help facilitate an integration of shadow and light to experience one's unified nature. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. So welcome back, everyone. Perceptive listeners in the audience will have noticed a slight amendment to the focus of the podcast here. From the very beginning, this podcast has been focused more or less on exploring the core themes relevant to the practice of yin yoga, namely the theme of the body, vis-a-vis the bones and fascia, uh, the the theme of the energy body, vis-a-vis the lens of traditional Chinese medicine, and the layer of the mental body vis-a-vis the practice of meditation. Admittedly, much of the conversations of recent have been more focused on elements related to meditation, and I'll be balancing that out as we go. But going forward, my intention is to expand the focus of the podcast to include themes relevant to the shadow aspects of being, also episodes related to the light aspects or the awakened aspects of being, and the various practices that I've found that are helpful that help lead one to an apprehension and that's in comprehension or perception, and integration of a unified being. I plan to be more even-handed in terms of my distribution of topics going forward, and I plan to rotate through the core themes of body, Chinese medicine, and meditation on a more or less monthly basis. Each month, the podcast will release an episode of a long-form interview with an expert from the field, And then roughly two weeks later, I'll be releasing a solo cast where I reflect on some practical applications of my guest's work to the practice of yin yoga or meditation. So far, the feedback has been quite positive on this development. I'm happy to hear that. And I really do hope you enjoy the programming going forward. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Richard Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems, Internal Family Systems, or IFS, is a model of psychotherapy that understands our inner world as being made up of many sub-personalities or sub-parts. Ideally, one's core self, that is the self in the middle of all these parts, the core self is able to conduct all these various parts much like a conductor would conduct a symphony, so that the self in a way is harmonized and in tune with itself. However, more often than not, our inner parts can get into conflict with themselves, which tends to lead to conflicts in our lives. The IFS approach is a very straightforward way of compassionately engaging in dialogue with these parts to help them unburden unhelpful roles and encouraging them to work more collaboratively with all aspects of one's being. I was first introduced to the practices of internal family systems by my own therapist, Jack Engler, about 15 plus years ago and I've found the tools of IFS particularly helpful whenever I've gone on intensive silent meditation retreats anywhere from a week or to lo- sometimes longer. And over the ensuing years, I've seen many forms of spirituality begin to integrate the insights and tools of IFS into their own models of practice. So it's with great pleasure that I now bring you the founder of this model of psychotherapy. We discuss how Dr. Schwartz developed the IFS model and we also look into what exactly our inner parts are. And Dr. Schwartz takes me through a role play session of helping me work with a particular part that often feels worthless and hopeless. We, talk about how, we also talk about how IFS might integrate within a broader spiritual path. So how you could take IFS ideas into your meditation or your yoga practice. And we also look, I scratch the surface of looking at how Jung's conception of the shadow is treated and held or worked with in the IFS model. Personally, I got a ton out of listening to this interview, and I hope you find the same benefit for yourself. So thank you for your attention today. And I now, without further ado, bring you Dr. Richard Schwartz. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me, Josh.
0: Um, so it's a real pleasure to have you here um I have this as a way of introducing this conversation i um I first came across your work roughly about fifteen years ago when I had come back from a period of intensive meditation practice in Burma. I'd been on a silent retreat for about two months, and I should say while I was on the retreat i was there was there were some liftoff issues where I was getting out of orbit, and uh, it took me a while to to get over. Uh, some of the early entry parts of the retreat. But once I got broken into the retreat, I was kind of flying high for a while. But when I got off the retreat and returned home to the United States, um, I, the way I describe it was like, it was like sort of doing a face plant on pavement, on tarmac, moving at uh, hundred miles an hour. I, I virtually psychologically fell apart. And it was totally unexpected to me given how I've been feeling on the retreat. And in kind of a moment of intense panic, uh, literally a panic attack, I picked up a, a number of a therapist that had been had come recommended to me, named Jack Engler, and I was able to get into uh, some sessions with Jack. And after a year or so, he started talking to me about, or encouraged me to have conversations with my parts. <laughs> And and from there, it became clear that he had been uh, recently influenced by your work with a model of psychotherapy called internal family systems. Mm -hmm. And in sort of watching how trends have developed over the last decade plus, it seems Mm -hmm. like, I don't have actual data on this, but it seems like IFS or internal family systems, this model you've developed, it may be probably the most rapidly growing, expanding and popularized form of psychotherapy today and and small evidence of that is many of my friends who have gotten into therapy recently are singing the praises of IFS and saying oh it's so helpful it's healing me in so many ways and you know about it I said yeah I was talking about that 10 years ago but great you found it um so it's a real honor it's a personal honor to have you here with us today and i think what i to start out the conversation um given that you've developed a new model of psychotherapy um, I sort of, I presume that anyone that develops a new model of something is 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 finding inadequacies or, de- or deficiencies in previous pre existing models, and as a way of introducing your model, I'd like to s- sort of hear from you what what did you see the limitations of some of the other models that maybe you got trained in, and then how does your system start to rectify or mitigate uh, those deficiencies?
1: Yeah, so that's a big question, but. Um I started out uh, back in college, working on psych unit for adolescents in Illinois. And I could see the limitations of the psychoanalytic model that the psychiatrists were using there, in that I was just an aide and I would be hanging around in the day room when the kids' families would visit. And I would see these families beating up the kids verbally, and then I would hear from the kids about their sessions, which wouldn't include anything about the families. Mm -hmm. And I said, something's wrong with this picture. So then I got interested in family therapy, uh, which, um, and systems thinking, and that brought the idea that you have to look at at a kid like that in the larger context of the family and all the forces that are, are, impinging on the kid to be in a certain kind of role in the family and you have to change a lot of that before you can expect the kid to change. And so I got enamored with family therapy. I became kind of zealot and uh, held that view until I tested it. I did an outcome study in the early 1980s with eating disorders and found that I could reorganize the family just the way the book said to do it and still My kids didn't realize they'd been cured. They kept binging and purging. So
0: Mm.
1: I started asking them why, and they started talking about these different parts of them. So this arose um, both to address the acontextual excesses of traditional psychoanalytic thinking, and then also the limitations of the external-only family therapy. Uh, and so I'm still, you know, I still do external family therapy work, and I still look at the context of whomever, whomever I'm working with to see if that's a big player and, and maybe intervene at that level if necessary. Mm-hmm. But also spend a lot of time getting to know these parts that my, my bulimic kids taught me about. So those, those patients were the initial teachers, uh, and basically, I've just been keeping good notes ever since in terms of having people teach me about this inner world.
0: And so and how did you come to call that inner world of family?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't know what to call it initially. Uh, but the more I would listen, uh, the more it sounded like these were, you know, what I call parts. You mentioned you were doing that with yourself were autonomous little entities almost that interacted in patterns that resembled the families I'd been working with. So it made sense to, you know, for a while I thought about maybe just calling it internal systems um, work. But somehow just the the idea that they were families just kept popping up. And, for example, when you work with... uh, one part well it became clear at some point that they weren't what they seemed so the part that was making my kids binge for example wasn't just a bundle it wasn't just an impulse as you would listen to it it would disclose that it had a whole range of other feelings and was trying its best to keep my client from feeling lonely and would just try and take him away from that lonely, empty feeling all the time to protect them. So once it dawned on me that these weren't just impulses or internalized voices from parents, or then I got to know that they were actually trying to help, even though they were doing it sometimes in an extreme way. Uh, then, and I got more curious about that, it became clear at some point that parts are like kids in a family in the sense that uh, if you, family theory's the big insight was if you take an acting out kid out of the family and say, cut it out, he'll keep doing it because he's in a role. He's been forced into the role of being a distractor in the family or being the identified patient or the scapegoat or something like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it turned out that these parts are very similar in the sense that. In their non-extreme state, they're like inner children or inner beings who are, are great. They have these wonderful qualities and resources to lend to us. But they're forced out of their naturally valuable states into extreme roles by the traumas we suffer or the attachment injuries. And they get frozen in time in the past in those traumas. And they carried thereafter these, what I call, burdens, these extreme beliefs and emotions that came into them from the trauma that then drive the way they operate, like a virus. And so as that became clearer, the connection between an inner family and an outer family made more sense, too. These were like kids in a family uh, stuck in roles they didn't like a lot of the time.
0: And when you refer to these parts that get sort of, stuck into roles as a response to traumatic events or circumstances. Um, I know you have a kind of a subclassification of different types of parts Mm and of of the internal ecosystem or internal family. Are all of those parts sort of, or all those categories of parts, are they all kind of fixated in the specific roles? Or is it just a certain set subcategory that, that tends to get fixated and stuck?
1: Yeah, well, it varies a lot, but, um, and again, I want to emphasize that the categories of manager, firefighter, and exile don't refer to the actual parts themselves, but only the roles they're forced into.
0: Say a little like more in, about uh, that, because, yeah, because I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure most listeners aren't familiar when you say what a firefighter or a manager or a yeah. exile is.
1: Yeah, so as I was listening, uh, I'm a systems guy, I'm looking for patterns and and uh, the, the big distinction that, that leaped out initially was between parts of us that are very vulnerable and sensitive, inner children-like, and get hurt the most, in a sense, by whatever trauma we experienced. And then after they're hurt, they, they become, well, they start out as these delightful, creative, playful inner children, often, Then after they're hurt, they feel like bundles of pain or or shame or terror because they carry those burdens from the trauma. Mm -hmm. And then we don't want anything to do with them. So we tend to lock them away in inner basements or abysses or caves or cysts. And so we call those the exiles. And so for exiles, it's insult to injury. The injury was the trauma, and then the insult is we abandon them. We lock. We try and get away from them. <clears throat> and then when you get a bunch of exiles, you have to have a lot of parts who are forced into roles to protect you because if an exile gets triggered by the outside world, it'll blast out of the con- containment and overwhelm you with all those feelings. And so we then have a bunch of parts whose job it is to manage our lives so that we never get triggered, so that we, we are uh, never let anybody get too close, or we never look bad, we always look good, so we don't get rejected, or we achieve a lot, so we get accolades, all in the effort to keep the exiles contained and not triggered. So these we call managers because they're trying to manage the outside life they're trying to manage your body they're trying to manage most everything about your life so you don't get hurt And other systems that'd be called the defenses right so can you
0: can you give it a, a very concrete example of an exile part and how that exile part would feel like what kind of situation might flood that exile part or flood the self with that with that energy of, of shame or overwhelm and, and then yes. how a manager part would 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 try to intervene and try to keep that out because I think the the the, the in the world on the ground uh, details of, of these dynamics I think are very uh, relevant and, and will be easy to connect to for the audience um, the the conceptualization of it is a little tricky at first but I think a, a good example would would make this come alive nicely
1: yeah I'll try to um, so I came out of my family with a lot of uh, a burden of worthlessness. I'll I'll call it that. So I had exile parts that felt like they weren't worth anything because I was the oldest of six boys to a high son to a high-powered physician researcher and I was supposed to be like that. I was supposed to be a good scientist and doctor and uh, I was I just wasn't uh, cut out for that and so my father would be very frustrated with me and say mean things. So there were parts of me that were frozen in those scenes and felt very full of shame that I, I walked out of my family with. Mm-hmm. And then after getting married, and, uh, and then those parts would drive what I call firefighter parts, which uh, is another class of protector that would either one of them was the part of the reason that I, IFS exists because to prove I wasn't worthless, I had to work like crazy and, and show my father that I had some value. So I had a striving part that did that. And then, uh, you know, that striving part got me so far, but it didn't make for a good husband. And so I would you know, not spend enough time with my wife or family. And my wife would be very angry at me and would, you know, be shaming in a similar way to my father. And so that would trigger that little boy in there who's still stuck back in those dreadful scenes. And then that would trigger these protectors who would be very defensive and and uh, try to prove that I, what she was saying was wrong or, you know, a variety of ways that I would try to protect myself from that. So each
0: of those. Sorry, I was just going to say one of the things I always tripped up a little bit with your with your classification of this is the protectors and firefighters. Those names sound, you know, they they have um, they're going to do good for the for the self. They're going to they're going to be there be there as as good agents, and yet a lot of times some of those the strategies the protectors and firefighters deploy. Actually, in one in one sense, they're trying to avoid a problem, namely the feelings that the exile is feeling. But they actually can can engage in a kind of behavior that becomes uh, even more problematic uh, downstream, and and that's the part that I've always been a little bit confused about.
1: Yeah. So let me let me explain that. So, and that is the confusion our culture in general and psychotherapy in general has made about particularly uh, extreme firefighter activity. So, you know, if you, if I'm working with a drug addict, for example, um, and you go to the, the part that's making him go to drugs all the time, it'll tell you that it's trying to keep him away from his pain. And this is the only way that really works for any lasting way. And that if, if the drug, if you ask that part, what's it afraid would happen if it didn't make you high all the time, Often the answer is, I would kill myself because the firefighter activity right above drugs is suicide. So in a sense, the, the drug addict is protecting you, is saving your life by keeping at bay the suicide part. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, and, and our culture and most psychotherapy don't get that. They think it's just an addicted part or an addiction and that we should be able to just say no to it or go to war against it. And, you know, the war on drugs is just a writ large example of the folly of that strategy. Mm -hmm. So
0: So how does, you know, using that example, um, because again, the average person is gonna see the the addict's behavior as itself a a form of self-destructive like delayed or eventual suicide anyway. Um, mm-hmm. and how, so how does your model and your, the process you've developed engage with that protective or, or, or um, firefighter part to sort of unburden itself of that role and also un, like to help manage yeah. the, the, the intense feelings of the, of the, the exile parts.
1: Do you want to role play it for a second, Josh?
0: I'd be happy to.
1: Okay. <laughs> so. Okay, Josh, so focus on that impulse to do drugs and find it in your body or around your body?
0: Um, well, I don't feel the impulse at the moment, so I maybe I, I have to sort of
1: imagine... I'll think of a different uh, one that you do feel, then. Hmm.
0: Yeah, well, recently, I have to say, given on the theme of drugs, I did quit caffeine. All right. And Great. And that, that, this has been an interesting one for me. So um, I can say... Uh, there was a muzziness all over my body the first week or so after going off caffeine Um, and I felt like I just couldn't get into gear I felt useless I felt despondent at times (laughs) all of that okay do you want to work with any of that sure I think that'd be more relevant given given that it was alive for me recently
1: okay so go ahead and and pick one of those feelings
0: uh it was it wasn't i wouldn't say it was it was located in a specific spot in my body just an overall energy of sinking like being stuck in, in quicksand or something that I, I just didn't have the same pep the same joie de vivre the same enthusiasm it just okay. it was so my self-consciousness my sense of self and consciousness of self was so dampened uh initially
1: and can you call that up now that that feeling yeah, no, it's 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 fair. it's it's in living memory. And as you notice it, how do you
0: feel toward it? Um, Hostile is not the correct, right, the, the exact word, but I feel.
1: Um, you wish it would non- go sh- away.
0: Yeah, I wish it would go away. I, yeah, I want to get past it. Like, you know, there's, yeah. I, it, it's it, an invo- and there's a voice in me that says, if you just brew a cup of coffee, this will be right. a thing of the past. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So let's let's get that voice to give us some space so we can just get to know this other one. See if mm-hmm. that, that works. And see if you can just get curious rather than wanting to get rid of it. See if you can just open your mind to getting to know this feeling we started with. See if that's possible. Get mindful toward it.
0: Yeah. So what's the question again? How do you feel toward it now? How, um, it is fear. Okay. Um, I feel that there's fear that that if it's if I'm like this forever, yeah, then nothing good will come.
1: Got it. So let's see if the fear will also step back and relax, because tell it if it gives us the space, we might be able to help it change. But if it hangs around, we can't do that. Yeah, I think that
0: the word that just popped in my head is that um, the feeling of that that despondence of it. So it's it's like a feeling of un- being unimpressive. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it, good. It's just it's not um, like a life that would be just flat and devoid of sparkle.
1: Kind of blah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. So, and how do you feel now that you're getting that? That's what that part carries. How do you feel toward it now? Um,
0: I, I'm not sure I fully distance myself from the the shame of it or the the, the avoidance of it, but I, I feel like th- there is a sense of. I mean, it's almost like I'm talking to somebody else that's experiencing that part, that side of themselves, and I, I it, and so I start to feel more compassion or um, concern or care for
1: it. Okay. I would say. All right. Well. Let's go with that, even though it feels like somebody else. Um, So let it know you have some compassion for it and just wait and see how it reacts. See if there's something it wants you to know more, but let it know you, you care about it and just see how it reacts.
0: This will be <laughs> this is an odd thing to admit, but it, it almost sort of has a whimpering sound to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's sort of it's it's not quite sobbing, but it's there's a there's a there's a moistness to the the feeling of the the, the eyes, and there's a sadness around it.
1: Okay, and can you tell how close you are to it in there in terms of feet away?
0: Now now that I connect with that energy, I feel definitely more in my solar plexus
1: and and gut. All right. So, And now you have more compassion, am I right? Yes. Yeah. So let it know that you're sorry. You see that it carries some sadness and you're sorry and, and you want to know more. Just stay open to it.
0: Well, as I bring that kind of energy that you just suggested to it, um, there was a feeling of things, something relaxing. Yeah, good. Um, just sort of the the film of sadness around it kind of dissipated and and there was more of a, um, yeah, just a calming, a calm relaxation of it.
1: That's great. And how are you feeling toward it now?
0: Less hostile. <laughs>
1: Okay. Can we do more, more,
0: better more, than that? No, no. And it, <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to be a little on the negative side or on self characterizations, but it, yeah, I feel I feel more loving and caring towards it. It's it's oh. it, it feel it feels like a um a side of me that um you know, like you were saying with the striving that mm-hmm. got kicked in. Like there's there's a whole mach- machination of energy that has just worked extremely hard to avoid uh sort of the the feeling of that part
1: yeah so maybe you could apologize for letting that happen and exiling this this one maybe you could apologize to him
0: and that part um the sort of a, i don't know what the right word is but it, it's sort of a a, a humility to it That sort of it almost feels like it's saying you don't need to apologize or appreciate that but it's not a big deal or it's sort of
1: okay well he probably doesn't totally mean that but yeah Yeah. um but let him know you're going to do better you're going to try and and not keep locking him away and you're going to try and spend more time with him now that you see who he really is
0: and what would that uh, from your side what would that look like spending more time with a Exile
1: yeah, it look like um, a meditation. You know, you meditate, right? Yes.
0: And that's so, what I want to get into. It's like, so like, how, how does this integrate with a meditative process?
1: Yeah, so that's that's how. So, you know, you would... Uh, well, before, let's just finish up with him for a second. Sure, sure. So just um, let him know this is your first real visit with him. You just started to get to know him and you want to you want to spend more time with them and just see how he reacts now
0: i mean he he, he feels uh, welcomed that part Good. feels feels welcomed and and um there's almost a wariness about being reintegrated coming back in like it's like he's been exiled for so long that he said you really want me back are you are these other parts going to be willing to take me in
1: he's got a point you know there was a lot of fear of him and a lot of dislike of him Mm -hmm. so tell him you're going to have to work with that so that he can feel welcome
0: Yeah, so he's he's game. <laughs> okay, he's, he's game to come back, and 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 there. I mean, and I can rep- self-report. There is a feeling in my in my solar plexus now, of something relaxing.
1: That's great. Yeah, and then um, well, tell the other parts that had such mis- misgivings about him that you're going to work with them, so they don't lock him up this much, because so, uh, he isn't what they thought, and he needs your love. He needs your He needs contact with you. And if he has that, he won't make you feel bad. See how they react.
0: Yeah, I mean, so not to get too like abstract on this, but it it feels like the main issue as we're going through this is the main issue is not so much the exile part coming back in and being welcomed by me. It's more these other parts that, have developed very, very uh, strong compensatory strategies to keep that part out, that they're the right. ones that I'd, I'd have more of a chat with and, and make sure right. that they, they, they trust me to let this other part come back in, right?
1: Exactly right, Josh, that's exactly right. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. And that, would be, that would be the next piece of work, would be to work so that they could welcome him back. Yeah. Um, and so he was your exile, the parts that hated him and wanted to keep you away from him were the managers. And then the, your caffeine guy was probably your firefighter.
0: Mm. Right. because that, And that's, you know, caffeine, you know, people will listen to that and people probably think, oh, caffeine's not that big of a deal. And, and as an aside, I, I had listened to Michael Pollan's new audio book about caffeine and listened to his process of going off it. And I think actually his description of how his sense of self was so unmoored in the early days of it that that allowed me to sit ride through that difficulty because of, okay this is more of a universal thing it's not so much specific to me other people experience this withdrawal the same way, um, and I but with with caffeine in particular you know that doesn't sound like a very you know it's not a destructive in the conventional sense a destructive habit usually but when someone say is addicted to something like alcohol or heroin or those more harder drugs um the firefighter energy or the firefighter part that engages in those behaviors is putting out the fire of that feeling of the exile right but it's still like that's where the firefighter is like smashing down walls in a way to put to save the dog or save save something in the house but there's all this destruction that comes from that behavior right
1: that's right exactly right but firefighters they think you're going to die if they let you continue to feel this so they they think very little about the you know the collateral damage to your body or to your relationships they just want to get you out of that state Mm -hmm. so that's why they get such a bad name but they're really just trying to talk to you
0: yeah so i appreciate you walking taking me through that exercise i just want to double check time good um we're okay um one of the questions this is a podcast that looks at meditation and and yoga yin yoga in particular um and one of the reasons i wanted to have you on was to get a sense or for how you think about or how you've seen your model integrated with spiritual practice and maybe set you up on that set, set up cue up that topic my sense is that in spirituality particularly in eastern forms of spirituality There's a tremendous disregard for the the specifics of of internal psychology or the specifics of psychology in general. You know, so to come back to my time in Burma, if I went to my Burmese teacher and said, you know, I'm having, I'm flooded for hour after hour with intense shame and self-loathing and suicidal ideation, you know, he would just say, Did you notice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, meditate more. Did you you know this is a noting technique? Did you note it? Did you note, you know, self-loathing, self-loathing, self-loathing? And that's really their 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 whole scope is just focusing exclusively on the process of experience, not getting into yeah. the content and the meaning of it all. Um yeah. and I think for better or worse, there's there there's a brand of that alive and well in, in Western soil too, where people use spirituality to in the hopes of bringing to resolution a lot of internal pain psychological problems that they have and in doing so they can engage what people now refer to as spiritual bypassing where they try to do an end run around their personal problems psychological problems to attain the, the vaunted uh, state of enlightenment and have hope at that point everything goes away now I, that has not played out for me at all in that that <laughs> progression but um i you know coming back to jack's work i remember going to a dharma talk that jack gave where he was talking about the hindrances of meditation these this sort of working set of energies desire aversion restlessness sleepiness and doubt that assail people when they try to practice and normally the tradition would try to uproot those those hindrances or, or suppress them or just focus in a steely way on the breath to make those other things go away And he integrated, he was one form of integrating your model to actually engage with these energies as subparts to bring them into the the process of awakening. Mm -hmm. And, And this to me was just, A, it was so counterintuitive to what I had been taught. You know, it was not what my teachers were saying. But secondly... I, I, did, I did that on retreats. I, if I got into difficulty on retreats, I would start having a conversation with my various parts. And I just saw pragmatically how much that transformed the, the overall process. Mm-hmm. So that was my experience. I'm curious what your take on that. Is. What, what have you seen in terms of the integration of the two?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a pet topic of mine now. And uh, I'm actually writing a book on this topic for Sounds True. Oh, great. and and uh, I totally totally agree with your critique. So most of spirituality has this attitude about the ego and the monkey mind and all the other names that you call parts, and it's an attitude of disdain. Yes, uh, and yeah, and and many many people come to spiritual traditions to try and as you said, deal with the traumas that they carry. And then they're subject to the spiritual bypass. And that doesn't heal anything. It just uh, becomes a firefighter activity. You become addicted to the meditation, the way you were to caffeine or whatever it is. <clears throat> and, you know, it does give you a sense of what I call self and what, you know, yoga calls self. Um, because you can get into that non-dual state that way. And there's a lot of uh, nice aspects to that. But my goal is to get into that state and then bring it to these parts in the way you just did. So, you know, you, uh, my take is that self is both a wave and a particle like a photon in quantum physics. So when you meditate, you can get into that wave state, that field of self where you don't have boundaries. But then when you come back, there is the same self, but it's in a particle form, has boundaries. And it gets covered over by these parts, gets blended with them. But as you get them to separate in open space like you did, spontaneously you'll start to feel these great qualities, what I call the eight C's of self-leadership including compassion and curiosity, but other C-words. And you bring that to your part so that rather than observing them with even acceptance, but from a distance, which is mindfulness basically, Mm -hmm. you observe them, you get mindful toward them, but then you go to them and interact with them in the way you started to. And you find out they aren't just ephemeral thoughts and, and, uh, you know, emotions they are little beings in there from my point of view they're little sacred beings and they're as deserving of love from you and 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 whatever the big self is as people are and the big kind of disgrace for me in spirituality is the dehumanizing of them the the objectifying of them or the despair the disparaging of them
0: and yeah, the disparaging, the degradation. I mean, you talked about the monkey mind. There's so many ways that people in the spiritual scene will say they'll 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 use the experience of thinking as evidence that their practice has faltered. That's like, right. Oh, I was thinking about this. My monk, I was mind was all over the place, and it's sort of this badge of honor to admit that you got caught again by your 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 damn thinking mind that got in the way.
1: The conditioned mind,
0: right? The, con- or the conditioned mind, right? And and so you know, and I definitely had onboarded that that program for a while, but, you know, through working with you and some other teachers who are more open and receptive to listening to thinking and, and the stories and, and, the, and the energies beneath them, um, you know, you talked about those parts having, I don't know what the exact phrase you used, but like, almost like little Buddhas, they're, they're little sacred, Thank sacred you. elements of you that when they're, when they're listened to, treated with respect, they actually integrate in with the whole thing and, and charge the whole process wave of awakening, exactly. rather than stand in the exactly. way
1: of it. Totally, exactly right. So when I go to meditate, I rather than try to shoo them away or ignore them, or I just notice what's happening and what they're saying and how much you know. I'll have parts that seem like the monkey mind; they're just chattering away about what I have to do tomorrow or whatever it is. And I'll notice them and I'll send them some love and I'll say, I get how much you want me to think about this right now, but just give me 20 minutes and I'll come back to you and I'll talk to you. And Mm -hmm. they relax. And suddenly my mind is clear and I'm in this meditative state rather than fighting with them for 20 minutes to not interfere. So in terms of translating it to meditation, that's one way. The other thing is, you know, when we were talking about your little guy, and I said it'd be great if you could follow up with him, uh, it's very easy to incorporate that into your meditation so that you start out by just checking in with him and see how he's doing today. And if he feels like you've been doing a good job of, of staying connected to him. And then if that's true, then you just go on and meditate however you want. Uh, if it's not true, then you find out more if there's something more he needs. But the act of turning that into a spiritual practice, a daily practice really makes a big difference to these parts,
0: yeah, uh, that I, I've definitely found that to be helpful. Um, it, i know we're we're a little bit pressed on time. You get a hard stop soon, and I think th- this is you can shoot you can swat away this question if you'd like, but i think you know i've I've been talking to some of my my hardcore buddhist friends about your model and and how it integrates with with a, a specific spirituality of buddhism i know you you co-teach with some buddhist teachers so I, i'm curious to see how you would parse this type of question if you can but your model essentially sees all the parts like different players of an orchestra if i get that right mm-hmm. and that the core self is more the conductor and the whole idea is that the the conductor can can get the whole symphony to play in unison or play in harmony with itself so there's not this sort of warring factions going back and forth or this disputes within the the players which then begs the question about the nature of that core self Mm -hmm. and 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 this is where the you know the, the buddhist lens comes in and says well the Buddhist folks will say there is no core self. That right. every everything literally is just nothing but changing, impermanent phenomena, arising and ceasing. And so, kind of one of the fears that some of the hardcore Buddhists might have around this model is that you are reifying a sense of self that it really isn't there, and that in the reification of it would further perpetuate. A belief in it that that then turns into a kind of suffering in its own right.
1: I I have had that argument with many different Buddhist leaders. And
0: um, so you're practiced, you're practiced for it then.
1: yeah. I mean your your friend Jack Ingler wrote a great, great chapter on no self versus the self of IFS and basically concluded that what not some of these guys you're talking about, the hardcore, but what many many Buddhists call no self, really means no parts. So it's it's the emptiness that's so full that you achieve when your parts are all relaxed and open in a lot of space, and that fits for me totally because that's what you know that's who's left. When so un- unpack that.
0: Yeah, unpack that. that a little bit. When like the no self is the empty space of no parts
1: yeah it's like no ego, no no uh, monkey mind. it's when they all open space, the person who's left is what I call yourself mm-hmm. and there's an emptiness to that because you're not filled with chatter, but um uh, it is a a self who you know i'm i'm t- I'm doing a workshop this weekend with Lama John McCransky. Mm-hmm who's a local um, Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist leader. And this is part of the topic, but uh, that could be compared to Buddha nature, which, you know, a lot of traditions do recognize or pure awareness or some version of that. Um, And the idea that there is no, you know, solid self, but everything is just a series of these little experiences, um, doesn't bear out. It just doesn't bear out with what people experience. So for me, they're reifying that idea. Um, And if you really explore, you're gonna find that there is a self and not only in the Eastern sense of a a place that you can go to and, and be an observer, from uh, uh, you know a lot of compassion and so on, but a self who is a leader, like you're saying, who can lead the inner orchestra or who can, who can lead your life in the outside world too. And my, you know, part of my goal is to get everybody hip to that so that there's much more self in this world because uh, just like in the inner world, when you start to access self, even very very polarized and uh, seemingly hopeless systems start to transform pretty quickly the same i am sure is going to be true as we bring more self to the outside world
0: yeah you know as you're saying all this um i'm reminded there's another friend of mine named robert wright who's devoted kind of his life work to uh ex- amplifying the importance of non-zero-sum dynamics on the world stage He's, he's more focused on geopolitical relationships and how there's a trajectory towards greater and greater um, dynamics of non-zero-sumness, which is, would be mutual collaboration. Um, and he has recently gotten into Buddhism, too, and I've been in conversations with him a little bit about it. I said, I don't know if you realize this, Bob, but... Buddhism, like meditation in one way, is a way to bring about, like transform the inner relationships of your mind from a zero sum dynamic to a non zero sum collaborative dynamic. And I think, okay. as you're talking just there, I think that kind of sums up in a way, one way of putting it together. I think what you're advocating, like the more people get into their, the, a, a collaborative relationship with all their inner parts, less yeah. win lose things, but more win win scenarios of, in the internal world. That the self that is in possession of, those, of that dynamic is then much better able to serve a non zero sum or collaborative win win dynamic with others in the world, too.
1: That's You're exactly. Not able- yeah, I'm totally into those parallels. Uh, you know, if you can become an inner bodhisattva, then it's much easier to be an outer bodhisattva. Mm. Because if you fear or, or hate or are or scared of parts of you, then when people act like those parts, you're going to be you're going to have the same reaction to those people. But if you can love all parts of you, then you can have the same kind of love with anybody who resembles them.
0: Right, and that's you know there's a kind of a, uh, a somewhat platitudinous meme out there that says if you have problem some a problem with somebody else is because they are exhibiting some trait that you can't tolerate in yourself. Uh, does that, that
1: sort of that's, echoes I think what yeah, you're saying. Kind of, sort of what i'm saying yeah Mm
0: -hmm. yeah well um i i want to get on on board with that idea that we can (laughs) open to and integrate our inner bodhisattva that will that will increase that that energy out out in the world and we certainly need it now um there's one other theme that i i did uh, i wanted to just throw a lob at you and see what your thoughts on it were which is that For me, in the last couple of years, I've been increasingly interested in the shadow, and I'm I'm not a clinician or an academic, so if I misuse the the concept Jung's concept of the shadow in any way, just correct me. But um, it's essentially aspects of the self that are unconscious and unable to be seen by the conscious self that can at times be a real driver for problematic behavior. And I'm guessing you probably see or hold see some of the uh, exiles and even some of the firefighter behavior within the scope of what we classify as a shadow is is that reasonably accurate
1: yeah so um what young called the shadow for me is that it's a combination of what i just described as exiles which are these vulnerable parts that by dint of getting hurt get locked away and then and there's also a class i didn't really mention which is what i'll call protectors in exile mm. so we all have and, and in our families, we were taught to fear certain parts of us, and so many people come out of their families and they they have succeeded in locking away their anger, for example, or they have locked away their uh, sexuality, or they locked and all that now is also part of the shadow. So it's it's I it's whatever parts you've locked away because of uh, your you know, enculturation or from your family. And then they're, you know, it's like, um, to give a more concrete example, I'm doing more and more work around racism. And, uh, you know, I'll be with a group of white people and I'll say, you know, around here, everybody's liberal, but so no, I don't have a racist part. But if I have them go in and, and muck around, they will find a racist part and they've, work their asses off to exile it because they're so ashamed of it. Yeah. But as I have them get all that to step back and they get curious about it, uh, it's a part like any other. And it carries what I call this cultural burden of racism for protective reasons a lot of the time, various reasons. And we can actually help it unburden and let go of that. Whereas if you're constantly locking it away because you're so ashamed of it, it'll ju- it'll become implicit racism, and it'll still have an impact, but it'll do it underground. Mm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it's it sort of, I've had friends that will say something like, everybody's racist, they just don't admit it.
1: And- <laughs> yeah, well, I agree with that. You, yeah. you can't be raised in this country and not have some racism as a burden. All right, And the key is what you do with it. You know, the key is do you lock it away and pretend like you don't, and then it becomes implicit, or do you accept it and not ju- but not just notice it and say, "Okay, you're my racist part." Help it unburden. Help it release all that. So,
0: yeah, no, it's it's almost rather than you know denying it or or just begrudgingly accepting it there's a There's a proactive engagement uh, and conversation that I think you're advocating to, to, that takes the potential dark energy in it and 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 brings it into more of an integrated um, mode, if you will yeah yeah
1: so everybody's got what young called a shadow It's just parts of you that you're afraid of and you've locked away yeah, and they turn out to be oh no. no different than all the other parts. They're valuable inner players who got uh, burdened by something that you got scared of. Yeah, Yeah. right.
0: Great. Um, I want to be mindful of your time. I know we're coming close to the end of our hour, but I just want to thank you so much for all your years of work and for taking the time to talk with me today. I hope this conversation, a mini-session, is illuminative for people in the audience and um, that hopefully more people will be exposed to the, the good work you're doing.
1: Thank you, Josh. I really enjoyed it myself. You, you, uh, it was a good conversation. You asked good questions.
0: Okay. That concludes today's episode and I hope you enjoy the conversation. In the show notes, I've left links for Dr. Schwartz's organization, where you can find find out more about IFS, as well as find a directory of IFS practitioners near you. Next up on the podcast, I'll be sharing my own reflections on how I've applied some of the internal family systems model into my practice of yin yoga and meditation. In the meantime, if you're interested in online trainings or classes with me and Terry, you can check out all of our regular offerings at www.joshsummers.net. That's www.joshsummers.net. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which will unlock two free practices for your immediate benefit. So sign up for the newsletter. You'll get two free practices delivered to your inbox, as well as a whole series of uh, reflections I gave on the basic elements of, of yin yoga. So again, you can find any of our information about our online offerings, or how to subscribe to the newsletter at my site at www.joshsummers.net. Okay, that's it for today. In the meantime, please stay safe and continue with your gentle efforts in cultivating your inner bodhisattva. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.